Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight, huh? Well, I'd like to invite you guys to enjoy the trailer for Paul Williams, Still Alive. In the 1970s, before there was this guy, or this guy, or even this guy, there was... Paul Williams! Paul Williams! Paul Williams! Mr. Paul Williams! When I was a kid, I really wanted to be Paul Williams. He wrote Evergreen for her, and Rainy Days and Mondays for them, and The Rainbow Connection for this guy. When you write a song with a girl's name, do you ever tell the girls that I was thinking of you when I wrote this? A lot of holiday inns and heard those lines. <laughs> and he was in movies like this, and one stuff like this. And I always thought he died too young. But last year, I found out something that amazed me. He's not dead. I'll never forget today, ever. Why are you wasting your time making a film about Paul Williams? Who cares? Come on, guys, that's enough. Get out. I followed him anyway. You know why? This guy's a national treasure. He should be getting his own night on American Idol. Where's he been? Golden Globe winning Hall of Fame songwriter, Paul Williams. Oh, my God, I can't watch it. Look, all I know is that when he had everything, he was miserable. And now he's got a lot less and he seems pretty happy. How can that be? I don't want to talk about that. I got to say, for a documentary, it's pretty good. We've got a love story. Have your heart set on it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I If you do, I'll go into it. There's friendship. Are we out here to make the documentary about Paul or are we out to like dish the dirt? There's a little sex. And there's a young hero. He starts with nothing. He gets everything. He loses it all. And then he finds redemption. And did I say there's a love story? We pull you in here, it just gets really authentic and gets my life. It becomes the Paulie and Steve show. You may find this hard to believe, but this almost never happened. You need a picture of this, huh? You live in my heart. This is not a mask, is it? This is seven months of nothing but banana daiquiris. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Bruce Handy from Vanity Fair, and tonight's guest, Oscar, Grammy, and Golden Globe winning Hall of Fame songwriter, Mr. Paul Williams. Thank you. Hold on, let me make sure that I've put my... There we go, and I don't want to disturb with my... I figured if I do this often enough, they might send me stuff, you know? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Welcome. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Good, Paul. Thanks. How are you? Bruce wrote some really nice stuff about the film, so I like Bruce today. Yeah, we're good. I would ask, the first thing, I just, uh, just backstage hearing that, uh, that great line from when you were on Carson in your... Um in your Planet of the Apes makeup. Was, was that line, was that Dacry's line? Was that, was that like totally improvised? Did you just uh, hit that I, on the spot? I've been, been spent working on a movie called uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And you get there at four in the morning, you know, and, and at that hour, at that time of my life, my breath would spin the windmills at an old Dutch painting, as Pat McCormick used to say. So you lay in this, in this you know, makeup chair. It's next to Claude Akins and, and Roddy McDowell, and he's, Roddy would always play. I always play uh, uh, classical music, and, and they torture you for four hours. And they put this on, and then you, you shoot all day. And I had actually been, been booked to do Carson, and we shot late, and I've got this stuff off. And I thought, you know what? Don't rip it off. 
I picked up the phone, I called the Carson, I called actually Doc Severinsen, who was the, the music director at the time. I said, I'll do, here's that rainy day in any key. Just put a little table up with a red and white, you know, little check thing, a cigarette, and I'll sing, maybe I should have saved those leftover dreams. Funny, but here's that rainy day as an orangutan. So, so not, I mean, uh, Johnny Carson had no idea that I was gonna come over dressed as an orangutan, and the line just came out of my mouth. Seven months of nothing but banana daiquiris. And in a lot of ways it was true because anything that got to your face, you got through a straw. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about, um, if you could tell me sort of how the, uh, how the film came about. You've talked about this on my note, but I think people will be interested. How Steve first approached you and, and what your feelings were about doing the film. And the great thing about email is you don't have to be an instant adult. You can actually avoid somebody in a really pleasant way. You can say, somebody sends you an email and says, I'd like to make a film about you, and you, my first thought was, I don't want to do that. But this seems like a nice guy, and I don't want to say no, so I kept it as new mail for eight months. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, this is not exactly pressing, so I'll just keep it there. And as long as I don't say no, I'm still a nice guy, you know. At, at a was he sending point, you more emails, or was he calling? No, or he, he was going to let it I lie. Think, I, I don't recall actually. I think he might have sent another email, email or something that reminded me. But at a certain point, I, I said to him, "Look, I've been asked to come up and, do, and appear at this thing called Phantom Palooza in Winnipeg. Maybe, I thought maybe he should make a little, little short film about Phantom Palooza, and then he'll leave me alone." So I invited him to Phantom Palooza. You, you want to explain what, uh, what that is for people who haven't seen the, the film In yet? 1974, I made a movie with Brian De Palma called Phantom of the Paradise. And it was, thank you. Thank you. It was not a great hit in this country. It was a, a, a big success in two cities, Paris, France, and Winnipeg. Explain it to me, I don't know why. But it was a big hit in those two countries. And it became, through the years, a bit of a, has a cult following and the like. But in Winnipeg and in Paris, it ran for years and years and years. So they decided to have a celebration called Phantom Palooza. I had never been to it. I think there had been one or two before. And then I went, then I went up. And it was, a lot, it was the cast and crew, a, lot, a bunch of people from the movie that showed up to meet the people that had been so nice to us about it. And Steve went up with us. And, it, and thus it began. Yeah. But you were, you were kind of, even when Steve, we first started working with Steve, you were, you were kind of keeping him at arm's length a bit. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, I've, I've said this before, I don't think there's anything more pathetic than some little old man going, please, sir, may I have another cup of fame? I mean, I just, it just, it gives me the shivers. It's kind of, the last thing I wanted was to do a, a where are they now or a behind the scenes kind of a thing. I had a wonderful life at the time. I was like, I'm now 22 years sober. So at the time I was like 17 years sober, maybe, yeah, 17. And, I, and my life was in balance. I had been as addicted to the attention that I got, you know, I mean, I did 40, Eight tonight shows. I remember six. It's like, you know, it was a time in my life where I was, if you set up a couch with a camera in front of it, Paul Williams would plop down in front of there and turn it on. It, it was, it's a little hard for me to look at all that footage. It's, there's such an obvious hunger for attention and a basking in the attention that it's just, it, it just it, it's hard for me to watch it. Once I walked away from all that, I didn't know if I wanted to as I say, poke the bear, because if you put out a film like this, and you don't know what the response is going to be. You don't know if it's going to be, yeah, yeah, what's relevant about you now, you know, it's 2012, you know, when you wrote that song in 1974, what the hell do you matter right now? 
the response has incidentally been, talk about something that touches me. When I read the kind of things that people have been writing about the film, I'm really glad I met Steve Kessler. So, so you, are, you are enjoying the, some of the attention that's been coming with the I'm film? Enjoy, I'm enjoying the respect of it. I think that's, you know, it felt so glossy and weird before. And, my, you know, there wasn't anything wrong with the attention. The way I responded to it is what was wrong. My response to it was like, a, you know, you know, you watch footage of puppies and there's three little puppies getting in and there's always one puppy who's kind of me eating out forever and plunges his way by them, knocks all the other little sweet puppies out of the way and falls into the bowl of milk, consuming all of it, denying the rest of the puppies their little taste. You know, I may be a little guy, but boy, when you put a camera up, I turned into that big dog that just, I thrived, I, I loved the attention. I think part of it is that I had been for many, you know, I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade. I was always the littlest kid in school, I was always the new kid in school. I looked. I looked like I belonged back in grade school when I was in high school. When I was in grade school, I could run under coffee tables. I mean, I was, you think I'm short, I was short. I looked like a Muppet, you know? I look, I know it's so perfect that I worked with them because I looked like one. I got it in my DNA, you know? So I was different, and being different's hard. Being different is difficult, you, you know? And, and for the kids that are dealing with that at school, dealing with bullying, at least they're talking about bullying today, you know? There wasn't a lot of talk about it then. You just, and the way that I dealt with it is by being funny and by being quick. And, and I think it kind of led to my becoming an, a, first an actor and then an entertainer. The one place in my life that was just really authentic and wasn't me on, it wasn't me trying to impress you or, or, or save me from your fists was when I wrote songs. And when I wrote songs, it was, it was what was really going on in the center of my chest and the amazing gift of my life is that people responded to it. Well, that's what's so interesting about, about you, I think, as a, as, a, as a public performer, is that, yeah, when you see all, the, all these clips and, and stuff, you're, like, a really funny guy and you're cutting up, but then, you're, you know, so many of your songs, you know, you think of, like, you know, rainy days and, and Mondays especially. I mean, there's you know, they're, they're such like undercurrent of, of kind of melancholy in, in, a, in a lot of the, the music, which yeah. I know Steve, I know that's, that's something that's, that Steve responded yeah. to and why he became such a fan of yours in the first place. But I, think, I think a lot of what I did as a songwriter too, though, you know, these guys that work for the United Nations, they sit there and they translate. They listen to Spanish, they translate it into Norwegian. They listen to German, they translate it into Japanese. I, I, when I started writing, almost immediately I found that I could write lyrics to other people's music. And like Roger Nichols' music was this pretty, but there was like, you know, this, El, this elegant sadness in his in his melodies, is, you know. I'm and, sorry, this Roger Nichols is your, Roger your collaborator. Roger Nichols was my writing partner yeah. on on a lot of this, the, all the stuff I wrote from the Carpenters, you know. So he would sit there and he'd go, da 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 da, note for note. He'd want me to write words to it, and I thought, what am I going to write about? What with that first song, which is is Rainy Days and Mondays, I remembered my mom because my mother would find me writing songs up in my pajamas up all night, and she would say. Don't worry, my son, God has a plan. And then she'd walk away and she'd hear, I'd hear her mumbling something like, son of a, oh my God, I always, Jesus, what's he gonna do? I said, what's the matter, mom? And she'd go, which for her was a word, you wouldn't understand, never mind, I'm just feeling old. So she talked to herself and she would always say she felt old. So what I heard in da da dee da da, ba dee da da, I heard talking to myself and feeling old. So the songs, the lyrics really came out of my own, my own history, my own being, my own whatever, 
but I was translating something I heard in Roger's melodies. I, I, I love writing lyrics to somebody else's music because I get to do that kind of, that kind of translation of what I, what I hear is already in there. It's a lot easier to write words and music myself. I was wondering, if, actually, if you could, it, I'd like to talk a little bit about your, your start as a, as a musician, because the, the film, you know, which really, the, the film is, is a lot about your sort of present tense. Um, it talks a little bit about your, about your very earliest days, but sort of from the film, it talks about you, it shows you kind of playing the guitar on the set of The Loved One, and you kind of the, say you sort of chase, picked yeah. it up, and then, oh, I'm sorry, The Chase, right. And then, um, then basically, it's kind of, you're suddenly, you're having hits, but I know you were in this great band called The Holy Mackerel, for one for one thing. I made um, albums that even my family didn't yeah. buy. You know, like, I made albums my mom didn't buy. And it was like, but, best kept secret in Hollywood but, was a group called The Holy Mackerel. But t tell me about just how you started songwriting. What, was, what, what were the beginnings of it, really? When I was on, uh, on a movie set called The Chase, I worked for like five months. It was a movie that starred Marlon Brando, uh, Robert Redford, Jane Fonda. I, I was playing a 15-year-old. I was in my early 20s. And... Uh, it's at night, and there's a lot of sitting on the set waiting for your shot. I, you know, I didn't have the biggest part in the film, so I had a lot of time on my hands. And there was a kid that I shared a dressing room with named Mark Seaton, since passed away. But he had a really nice guitar, and I picked it up and started to play with it, and he went, don't, don't, don't touch my guitar. It's a Martin guitar, get your own guitar. And I went, okay, so I did. Had you had any, any training in guitar no, or I didn't. keyboard he, or anything? He or? showed me how to tune it and I'd sit there and I figured out how to make a D. And I didn't know what they were called, but I know that if I could go, we'll make this little sound out of it, I could go, brighter than sunshine reflected on water. The smile of the lady is gracious and warm. And I started, you know, kind of, I started doodling. I'm a chronic doodler. If you watch the film, I'm always humming. It's like, you know, I'm that close to being locked up. It's just, you know, there's music in my head. There's, and, it's, uh, and once I found that, it became, you know, what, what I realize now is that all those years before I did music, I was listening to not rock and roll. I discovered rock and roll after the Beatles. I fell in love with the Beatles. The Beatles led me to the Buffalo Springfield and back through all the, you know, the great 50s music and all. But, but uh, see now, when I drank, I never dropped a, a, a glass like that. You know? um, but the fact is that when I was a kid, what I was listening to, the music I was listening to, was the Great American Songbook. You know, it's funny because I'm now president and chairman of the board of ASCAP, and we, we have a hundred years worth of music that we represent, including the music of Gershwin, Ir Irving Berlin, the, you know, Cole Porter, this amazing stuff. So when I was a kid, I'm listening to Sinatra, I'm listening to, there was an album called Manhattan Towers by Gordon oh, God, Jenkins. Do you know That's Man a great record. Wait, wait, wait. It's, you know Manhattan Towers? I know Manhattan Towers. Wow. It's very, it's a strange but wonderful record. You know, isn't that an amazing record? And the thing is, it's these swelling melodies and it's all, I mean, it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to come to Manhattan and have my Manhattan Towers, you know, the like. But so my music, when I started writing songs, I'd been listening to guys that put, you know, the, the, the soul craft of, of, you know, how you put a song together, a verse, a verse, a, a channel, a chorus, a bridge, whatever. I think there was, in a way, my love of that kind of writing was my, my, my music school. And then the advanced music school were the amazing guys I wrote with, Kenny Asher, uh, uh, Roger Nichols, uh, Charles Fox and Charlie and I wrote the songs for a movie called One on One, a basketball movie. I'm the perfect guy to write about basketball <laughs> players, you know. And we wrote the Love Boat theme together. Love exciting and new. Hey, the Love Boat theme. But you know, this is a, you, you, you say that because I, I was 
sort of think of you sometimes, I, I think of the, these songwriters, these kind of bridge figures between like the, the great American songbook era and the, and the rock era. I mean, I think of you, uh, you know, Burt Bacharach, to my mind, would fall, fall in that, that group. Jimmy Hal Webb David. would be another. Burt Bacharach and yeah. Hal David, the yeah. brilliant li lyricist, you know. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. I would love to know, um, well, so the, the, your first, your, I thought your first hit was uh, We've Only Just Begun, the, the one that really I had two out. songs in the t top ten at the same time. I started out writing at this amazing time when there was all these huge, huge stars that were in, and, and classic recording artists that were in the third act of their lives. So I got songs recorded by Elvis and, and Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme, all these, you know, Ray Charles, Ray Charles. And most of them were album cuts, you know. I, I'd... In those days, you had an album, a nice little vinyl come, album come out, you know, or you had a single with two sides. And you know what? If you wrote the B-side, you got paid too. I wrote the B-side of Close to You, I Am Woman, all these, all these <laughs> songs. So it was amazing. I was making a nice living, but nobody knew who I was. I mean, it was, I had album cuts by all these guys. And then I, had, I went to Paris to work on an album with a, with a great French composer named Michel Colombier. And while I was gone, two records came out that I didn't know about. The first one was Out in the Country by Three Dog Night. And at the same time, I'd written a commercial for a, uh, for a bank that we expanded into a song called We've Only Just Begun, Roger Nichols and I. Karen Carpenter and Richard's record of that came out at the same time. So when I came back from Paris, I had two songs in the top 10 and my, you know, my world changed. My world changed. Did, did you have that experience that they always have in movies where you're, like, you're driving along? Well, I guess you're in Paris, maybe. I was, I was saying the cliche where you're driving along, suddenly your song comes on the radio, and you're like, holy cow, okay, we got a hit. But I guess, how, did you, how did you find out that you In Paris, it was just, excuse me, mademoiselle, get out of the way. I, had, I looked like a woman. I had hair down to here. I was just, you know, you know I, I didn't have a six-pack. I had a pony keg like I do now, you know. And I, I, was just, I wore round black glasses and a top hat, and, and I was dressed like a hippie with hair down to here and my little round black glasses and no facial hair. I, I wasn't even shaving in my early 20s, I don't think yet. And I was getting a lot of yes, madame, no, madame, and I'm going, wait a minute, whatever. Then, uh, but I came back to the States and it was, it was you know, so I'm Did somebody send you a telegram or anything? Or I want no, some drama here, no, I want some drama. I just, no, I just, yeah. you know what, I just remember getting in the car and turning on the radio and it went, that's my song. And you want to roll down the window and go, hey, lady, guess what? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it was fabulous. It was a, it's a huge honor to have somebody that wonderful record your songs. Um, I'm going to ask uh, two more questions, then I'm going to open it up uh, to everybody here. Um, the first of my last two questions is, I was wondering if you could tell me about uh, writing Evergreen with, with Barbara Streisand, because she seems like, I mean, obviously her public persona is somebody that you wouldn't think would necessarily be the easiest collaborator. But. Oh, she was a, just always easy to work with. and. <laughs> no, you know what? I, I got a phone call from Barbara. I was getting fitted for a tuxedo. I, I'm trailer trash. I was getting fitted for a tuxedo at my house, and the guy's measuring my stuff and all. And that kind of puts you in this sort of elegant place, you know, like first time in my life that a tailor came to my house and was fixing, you know, one of these tiny little tuxedos for me. And then my wife came in, and, and she said, it's Barbara Streisand on the phone. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Barbara Streisand on the phone. And I went, hello, Barbara. Hey, did she, you know, and she said, you, you wrote a song called You and Me Against the World with Kenny Asher. And, I, and or she didn't say with Kenny. I said, yes, with Kenny Asher. She said, There's, I'm doing this movie, a remake of A Star is Born. And at the end of the movie, I find a song that John Norman Howard had, had written that I hear a tape of it. And I think he's alive, but I hear this song. 
we'd, we'd like to talk to you about maybe writing that song. That's what she said. What I heard was, we'd like you to write all the songs for A Star Is Born. I don't know why, I don't know what the, con it wasn't the connection, it was the ego, and that's what I heard. So I took the script that they sent me, and I went through the script, and I made all these notes about where the songs would go, and what they'd be about, and what John Norman Howard's band would be like, maybe, and, and her kind of, you know, the, you know, the really edgy rock and roll, and then her softer sound, blah, blah, blah. And I went in and met with John Peters and, and Barbara at, at her beach house. And she, I sat down, and I went through the script with her, and they just sat there the whole time, like, looked at each other, and they said, would you excuse us a minute? And I went, Sure, it's your house, you know. I went out in the foyer, sitting there, and they finally brought me back in, and they said, that's not what we asked you at all. I went, gulp, I didn't, you didn't? They said, no, we asked you about one song. But we have a picture to shoot in seven weeks, and we'd like you to, to begin get involved. So I brought Kenny Asher in, and, and Kenny and I sat down and started writing the songs. Writing with Barb, one of the first things she did was picked up a guitar, and in the most delicate, almost embarrassed, sweet way, she played... She, she sang the melody and found the chords. And I'm going, oh my God, that's gorgeous, you know. That's your love ballad right there, which I didn't write until the very end of the job, which so every time I saw her, she was going, where's my love ballad? I said, you know what, we have to shoot the, the songs for John Norman for Chris Christopherson first, so I wrote those. I'll tell you something interesting about the woman. My favorite song in, 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 the, in the picture is probably the one she sings brilliantly in one take at the end of the movie. Kenny and I wrote a song called With One More Look At You for the end of the movie. She sings it in one take. When I sang her the lyrics, and I was really proud of those lyrics. You know, with one more look at you, I'd learn to change the stars and change your fortunes too. I'd have the constellations Paint your portrait, too, so all the world might share that wondrous sight. The world could end each night with one more look at you. I was, I was like, oh my God, so proud of this lyric. There were three lines in the song that were not quite right, and I underlined them, and I went, these can be better. I sang the, the lyrics to Barbara, and she looked, sat there, and she looked at me, and she went, you know what, there are three lines that can be better. And she named the three that I had underlined. And I showed them to her. And underlined with a note next to them, these three can be better. It's an amazing gift for understanding what works for her and what's right in a song. What I never really did, I should probably do right now and say thank her for a great opportunity. You made my children's lives better by giving me that job. Um, the last thing I want to ask before I open it up is, and this, I have to admit, this is kind of a, a personal pet peeve of mine, that, that, but there's the notion that I think a lot of creative people have that it's like you, you need to suffer to be creative, or not necessarily you need to suffer, but that you know that you can do better work when you're unhappy. You know, I know, and I know, I, I know people in my life, you know, artists and and, and such who have, who have actually sort of resisted in some ways trying to improve their lives because they think they need that pain uh, to create. And and what I think is interesting about Steve's movie is that it's it's a portrait of a happy man. Um, yeah. And I hope that's the, the reality of who you are. I think yeah, it is. Yeah. And so I, I'm just curious what you think about, about, about writing from a, a, happy, a, a happy, I want to say a happy place, because that sounds corny, but I can't think of a better way to phrase it, as opposed to an unhappy place. And whether what you think about that, that kind of this, this notion of, of kind of art coming out of, out of unhappiness yeah. as opposed to happiness. I think, that, I think that intense emotion gives us stuff to, to, 
to work through. And one of the ways as artists we work, or you know, as, as as writers and painters and filmmakers, is you work through that stuff. You know, I think that this is an amazing process that have blips of, of happiness and they have blips of suffering. And you know, she's the one, and and you give her way too much attention, which is out of balance. So she, you're not mysterious anymore. So she leaves. You suffer. You write about it. You get somebody else back. It's sort of hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. You know, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting because it's life. It's beautiful because it's life. It really takes a re really, really negative turn when you try to say, you know what, that kind of magnificence of just feeling right and on top of the world is not related to a human being or a work that I'm proud of or being a good dad or a faithful husband. It's this little bottle with this, hold on just a second. Oh. Yeah, there it is. I don't have to do anything for that except get the dealer and do that again. And all of a sudden, you're on a, you're on a pathway that is shutting down your senses. I remember sitting next to a young lady who was so scared that I was going to die, and she was trying to get me to go to rehab. I'm sitting next to her, and I realized I'm supposed to be feeling such intense caring for what she's, how she's caring for me, and I couldn't find a feeling. I had shut myself so down so completely, chasing that first feeling. And it took a decade. I mean, you know you're an alcoholic and an addict, which is like saying you're from New York, New York. You know, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. But you know you're an alcoholic and an addict when you misplace a decade. And what started out as sort of what everybody was doing in the 70s, and we were having a little toot and a little drink and all, led to me going, well, people weren't like Chris Caswell worried about me. You're going to meet Chris Caswell tonight, the gentleman who's coming out to play piano for me. One of my dearest friends in the world, he said, I'm worried about you, and I fired him. That's what, the last thing I wanted to hear, because there was no way in the world I was going to give that up. And for years and years and years, I went from Johnny Carson's couch to, uh, to peeking out the Venetian blinds at 3 in the morning, looking for the tree police, because I knew they were out there. And the fact is that the life that I, that I thought I had and the career that I thought I had was long gone by the time I finally got sober. When I did get sober, I experienced something I had never done before. I had always been fine. How are you, Paul? I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. When I got sober, I hit my knees in front of a lot of people I didn't know, and I said, I'm scared to death. I think I'm dying, and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? and I got the help I needed 22 years ago. They gave me a life I couldn't have imagined. The best part of my life is that when you put a camera on me, a camera on me now or stick a microphone on my face and ask me a question, I can tell you that there is hope for the hopeless and that recovery works and that the life I have today is a balanced and a, and a, and a life that I am totally grateful for. My, this train operates on the track of trust and gratitude trust and gratitude. I trust this is going to work out. I trust we'll, we'll have the kind of day we're supposed to have. And I'm grateful for, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. I, I just want to say before we open it up that it, it's, it's also a, uh, it's also a, a, a still a very uh, creative life and you've written a very, I think as I understand it, your most recent song, a very beautiful song which Thank plays uh, over the credits of uh, Paul Williams Still Alive and I hope that's one of those songs you'll, I'll do that you'll play. For sure. Thank you. Um, but yeah, let's have uh, some questions. Yeah. Raise your hand, the microphone will come to you right here in the second row. Hey, how you doing? Um, 
I wanted to know, what would you say is the most important elements of a song? I think the most important elements of, of the song is, is, actually I want to step over that question to another question. I think the most important element to the songwriter is authenticity. You know, I wanted to be David Bowie, I tried to be David Bowie, it didn't work. I wanted writing these mushy things that were what was authentic Paul Williams, and I found out that what I feel, other people feel too. So, what's your name? Wayne. Wayne, are you a songwriter? Yes. So, what's your experience in, and what's in, living in your heart right now and the questions and the answers and the, and the things that are funny to you and all are things we need to hear. And so, you know, the, to, to concentrate on, on the, what's coming out of you and to work on that is, is probably is something I could, I could never really comment on that. But I know that authentic, what we need in this world that we haven't had yet is authentic Wayne. So you bring us, you know, like you've gone through you've gone through magical dances and crap that we cannot imagine. But you bring that you know, to the experience of, of creating your art and the gift you're gonna get back is people are gonna go, happened to me too, I, you know, I like that. I, they may not say I know why I like it, but the reason they like it is because what's happening to you that you can't imagine happening to the rest of the world is happening to the rest of the world and those people are gonna lean into you and if you, if you share that honestly, and originally, with originality and authenticity, you'll have a great success, and I'll pray for that. Right behind him in the third row. Uh, hey, Paul. Uh, I had a question specifically about uh, Bugsy Malone and Phantom of the Paradise, and just the sort of narrative songwriting that you do there. Like, how involved in the creation of those pieces were you with the whole kind of the book and the plot and all that kind of stuff? Were you just brought to it at a later stage? Or were you integrally involved from the beginning? Or did it vary depending on the project? Phantom of the, thank you for the question. Phantom of the Paradise and Bugsy Malone are two real pure labors of love. They're very different experiences. Alan Parker was a very successful uh, commercial director in the UK. And he used to tell his kids the story of Bugsy Malone. So he made up this whole thing about how they drove cars, you pedaled, but they made car sounds. They shot machine guns, but shot custard pie and all. And he came and he showed me a, a little kind of a, a presentation. He came, visited me in Las Vegas. And he showed me this, this wonderful drawings of what the film was gonna be like. He had a finished script and we looked at it and I, and I sat down with him at a, at a diner called Foxy's Diner, or no, Foxy's Deli. In, in Las Vegas and went through the script and said, uh, okay, the first one has to be about, about Fat Sam's Grand Slam speakeasy. Anybody who is anybody will soon walk through that door. At, you know, and, we, and it just kind of started rolling. I wrote very specifically to the, to the film that he had, the script that he'd written uh, and had a ball. What he wanted was, he said, I want these kids to sing, but, but because it's a different world, he said, I got a couple problems. One is I'm using mainly army brats to act in it. I don't know if any of them can sing. What are we going to do? I said, let's have other people do their voices. I said, it'll also be interesting if they're talking like, wait a minute, Bugsy, come over here. You don't have to worry. And they start singing with these voices. In retrospect, I'm, part of me feels bad that I didn't let the kids sing. I mean, I would love to have heard Jodie Foster actually sing, my name is Tallulah, my first rule of thumb. I don't know where I'm going or where I'm coming from. I mean, Jodie would have killed it, you know? So I feel, as an actor, what I handed an actor was, was I took away their voice, you know? So I feel a little bad about that. But that was pretty much a straight ahead operation of writing the songs 
With Brian, the movie kind of was, you know, Brian's script was terrific. It was called Phantom of the Fillmore, originally. And when Brian and I started working together, it was just about the songs. I was not going to act in it. But then he's looking at me, and I'm going, I'm getting passionate about ideas and kind of, you know, getting a little, you know, aggressive or whatever was going on. He saw something in that. And his first thought was that I played the Phantom, you know, kind of up in the rafters throwing sand, you know, bags on people and the like. And I went, I can't be scary. I'm too little, you know, I, too, I, I can't do that. Also, you want me to, uh, to act with one eye through a mask. William Finley, God rest his soul, who just passed away, with one eye offered a performance that was so measured, so touching, so deep, with literally one eye. And his and his his magnificent talent. I couldn't have done it, but when he said offered me that, I said, "What about Swan?" And he went, "You know, that's really interesting." And I didn't want to play somebody who said stolen music. I didn't want to send out a message that I had a beef for the music industry. I said, "Let me be the thief. You know, trust me. I can do this." You know. I loved the whole thing. It changed a lot. What we were working on it, it became more and more of a, because I was so little and young looking with this whole sort of, sort of you know, the portrait of Dorian Gray element kind of got, was woven into it. A big thing was originally Beef was killed uh, in the shower scene. And the conversation that Brian and I had was, wait a minute, if you do this on stage and it follows theatrical violence and the kids see somebody killed on stage and they think it's part of the show, think about the message that, that is sent there. My favorite line in Phantom of the Paradise is when, when uh, Philbin asked me, why do I want to have, have uh, this murder take place you know, during, during the wedding and be televised? And I say, an assassination live on coast-to-coast -coast television? That's entertainment. I, I love that line. We were sitting down, down watching the, the Vietnam War on, with our TV dinners. We'd crossed that line where news had become had become entertainment. I thought that was a really interesting element of the story is that we had just lost our way in the media. It kind of applies today as much as ever, I think. Good question, thank you. Right over here, third row to your, your right. Uh, well, I was gonna ask uh, how quick you think I could get to Texarkana and back with some Coors. Uh, but uh, with these movie musicals that you've written, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone is available for stage rights through MTI, um, but have you ever considered using your music for uh, a stage production? We have, we have, through the years, come that close with Phantom of the Paradise for the stage. Uh, I think that what will probably, what may very well happen to, to with Phantom of the Paradise, and you know what, Phantom's had some wonderful fans that are, that are actually, I mean, I wound up with, with uh, Scissor Sisters and some of the guys I'm working with now all because of Phantom. Phantom has been a great connection to some of the younger musicians that I'm working with. Uh, I think it will probably wind up being remade as a film first and the people that want to remake it want to use the original score which is, you know, I, I control the music so I hope that happens. I think it's a natural for the stage. I think it's a natural for a high-tech, really dark, very romantic mu musical and I hope that's ha that, has, that will happen. I mean, it, we've announced it about six times that it hasn't happened, so I've gotten to this point now, but at this age, I'm like, you know what? If it's supposed to be, it's gonna be. If it doesn't, I'm thrilled that you would like to see it. You know. Has there ever been uh, talk of doing a, like a jukebox musical with, with some of your, with your work? 
Yeah, you know what, the, the thing that I have out there right now, and it was just option for the UK, is Happy Days of New Musical. While we were shooting this show, it's interesting. Now, Steve Kessler, whose name has not been mentioned in a long, long time, I need to mention Steve Kessler. Steve Kessler, when he came to me, I think would have been thrilled to find me living behind a junkyard in a trailer, playing at the Red Lion with singing Rainbow Connection to a sock puppet. He wanted, that's, what, that's what he had in his head, you know. So along the way, you can only put so many things in the film, and what he chose to put in the film, I think, gives you the real arc of where I, where I was, where I fell to in my addiction, and what my life is like today. But there were some things that happen while we're filming this that are not in, in the movie. One of them is I wrote a complete musical with Gary Marshall called Happy Days, a new musical that toured the country. Kids are doing it in schools now, and hopefully it's going to wind up. Maybe it's, I don't know if it'll ever make it to Broadway, but it's certainly going to have a life in, in, you know, through the years, and will hopefully now be a major production in, in the UK. Uh, I wrote, two years ago, I wrote a, the story and the songs and, and co-wrote the teleplay for a bump at Christmas, Letters to Santa. It was a, uh, I was actually nominated for an Emmy two years ago. That didn't make it into the film either. I think it would have clouded the story that he was telling that he kind of had in his head as we went through. But the fact is I've never stopped being productive, you know, being creative, I hope. And, and I'm, it's just a much more unbalanced these days and all. Uh, but I'd love to see, I would love to see, uh, I'd love to see Phantom of the, of the Paradise on stage. It would be a thrill. Last question in the back row. Yeah. Hi, Paul. Um, until about an hour ago, I didn't even know who you were, but I just realized that one of your songs was um, somebody gave me back in the days of cassettes on a mixtape when I lived in Europe when I was about 20. And it was an extremely instrumental part of my development as a songwriter. So I'd like to know what your, what the, where the song Faust came from, because it was one of my all-time favorite songs. And now here you are. Thank you. That's, some, that's wonderful. Well, you know, all the songs in, in basically in Phantom of the Paradise came out of the story. And Faust is, I was not myself last night. Right, okay. I was not myself last night, couldn't set things right with apologies of flowers. Out of places, a crying clown, play went on for hours. You know, I have to say that it came out of trying to write Winslow's cantata. So, you know, because he's writing this cantata on Faust, you know. You know, Faust, who's Faust? What label is he with? No, Faust with, you know, and it's, it's about getting So I wrote the first pass of so much of that was, was really in the voice of Winslow and his music. And then you hear the stolen uh, Faust, which has that elegance of, of Winslow's voice, with the uh, you know with the stolen elements of it. All of a sudden, the juicy friends are singing. I was not you know, I was not myself last night. My, I ran a light. My Woody barely running. You know, it's doing a, a Beach Boys kind of thing with with upholstery about that. But thank you. I'm glad the song touched you. Look forward to hearing your songs. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. So I think, uh, yeah, we're going to have some music. We're going to clear the stage. We're going to set a couple things here, and then I'll come back and sing a couple songs. Thank you. Bruce, thank you. Give Bruce a big round of applause. Thank you. You bet. You bet. All right. When there's no getting over that rainbow, when my smallest of dreams won't come true, well, I can't take all of the madness 
best this world has to give But I won't last a day without you The dreamer's still alive A blessed mystery For sweeter souls did not survive But if you're lucky when it's done Somehow deep inside The dreamer's still alive been told and some choose to believe it but I know they're wrong wait and see and someday we will find it the rainbow connection the lovers and the dreamers and me